Welcome to Writing It, a podcast by Ed Adams. The Triangle, episode 20, a novel by Ed Adams. Serious Crimes Unit Civilian clothed, Donovan had visited the hotel and restaurant and quietly informed the management that there was a severe problem. He had asked to see the guest list and the list for the dating question. In late November, on a Thursday, the hotel was not fully occupied, although from Friday and in the time leading to Christmas, it soon became busy again. The stylish clientele was international. The hotel's room prices to Donovan were high, even by London standards, so there was a mix of pop stars, fashionistas and it people who stayed there along with well-heeled Americans, Japanese, Russians and Arabs. An exclusive nightclub rent most evenings and there was a very discerning admissions policy and less staying at the hotel. Donovan was commandeering the whole restaurant for the evening of the meeting. He explained to the hotel management that he needed to do this but in a discreet way. He said the most straightforward way would be to say that there were two visiting people in the next few weeks and to imply that they were senior royals. The location of the restaurant and its profile made this entirely plausible. The evening in question had several tables booked, but was quite light apart from hotel guests who may book on the night. Donovan considered this carefully. A lightly booked restaurant and last-minute reservations may blow the secrecy with which his own people were being deployed. He decided to adopt the variation of the plan. He would book the rest of the tables and fill them with his own people. This could be a combination of police officers and the military, but needed to be done in a way that didn't make it look as if Mr Plod was in town. He decided to take all tables, keep a couple empty to not arouse suspicions, and to arrange small groups and boy plus girl as assignations in addition to the usual guests who would be present. The restaurant was quite small and the capacity of the combined restaurant and bar area was less than 100 people. To minimise confusion and capacity within the bar, Donovan decided he would have a large section reserved for a small private party. He was sure that the household cavalry would be pleased to oblige for this and could easily simulate a sporting victory or something similar, which would allow them to play to type without needing to bring too many outsiders along. Donovan really realised that this was a potentially career-enhancing or career-limiting situation. The sheer profile was about as high as it could be. He required paperwork signed by the Home Secretary and the amount of select units involved was about as serious as it gets. The Chief Constable had inserted himself into the process as the operations leader. All goes well, and he could soon be a superintendent. If it went wrong, he may be wondering about whether he would still have a pension. There was also a maximum level of security imposed over this process. Those involved for the next two days were being kept away from other officers and individually briefed about security. In addition to the British involvement, there was also a veritable array of special advisers from the United States. Another stage was some special equipment installed into the hotel. This was less problematic than they had expected. The hotel was already wired with full camera observation and there were an above average number of door and general security attendants as part of the hotel's high quality image. The Italian eight staff were particularly attentive and stylish. Adding directly to their front of house number would be difficult. Donovan decided that changing waiters or bar staff would be too difficult and quickly detected. Instead, he would arrange for high coverage from the available tables and that their placed people would carry any necessary surveillance gear. 
It was also essential to only enable any special technologies after the guests had arrived. Otherwise, it was very likely that they would be detected by a sweep of the room by one of the security people accompanying their prime visitors. The preparation was intense, both inside and outside of the restaurant. Across the road was the edge of Kensington Park and the nearby gate to enter the park. Just the other side of it, on the edge of a broad footpath, two large porter cabins were being moved into position. This is where the reinforcement firepower would be housed. Three Chevrolet trucks and a Mercedes van were parked behind the porter cabins and were unloading grey gunmetal and green and brown cases into the back of the porter cabin units. Quiet evening in Kensington. Amelia Brophy had checked into the hotel linked to the restaurant. She was also checked into another cheap hotel about one and a half miles away. At the new venue, she was Miss Foster. She was still using Brophy at the old other hotel. Her initial check-in was, was, was just a small hold-all. She would be bringing the rest of her baggage by taxi later. The rest of her baggage in the other hotel was already wired with the Capex plastic explosive and a phone detonator. She could phone her case from across the road at the point she wanted to cause the devastation. She walked from the hotel to the street and looked around. A park and some construction work were opposite. A busy street was leading to the Kensington High Street, a tube station, a side street with a national car park. The car park was about five minutes on foot. The car park would be her means of escape. She would need a rental car, position it as close to the exit as possible, even if it meant reparking. She needed to know that both groups were in the restaurant and then to introduce them to one another. They would both suspect a trap and this would be the point where they would start to make for the door. That would be when she would trigger the device. She would already be outside, across the road. She would then walk to the car park and make a casual escape while the confusion continued. Then head north by car and aim to finish at Manchester Airport by midnight. Amelia then had most of the planet in reach for the following morning. She already had a reservation at the SAS Radisson, which was part of the airport complex. Her high car was delivered to her original hotel, and she drove it directly to the car park in Kensington and parked ready for the main evening events. Everything was now prepared. Donovan had his men in place. Amelia Brophy was in the hotel. Her luggage was to be picked up by taxi and transferred to the new hotel. She would ask the concierge to leave it downstairs because she would be leaving the hotel shortly. By 7pm, the Russian group arrived at the hotel. They seemed in good spirits and regarding this session as a routine meeting. Although they were supposed to be collecting important data, none of them seemed particularly guarded or cautious. They took up their table and ordered some vodka immediately. It looked as if they had already been drinking earlier, or at least that the security men supporting the group seemed particularly well-oiled. The Saudis arrived 45 minutes later. They also arrived in stages. Two suited men came first and walked around the restaurant before the others arrived. They noticed the Russian group but did not take any particular notice other than they were, partic- other than they were noisy. Amelia Brophy had expected the Saudis to be late. Time worked differently for people from the Middle East and delay was mainly to emphasise their importance. The security men called on their mobiles and then waited by the front doors of the hotel for the Saudis to arrive. A short time later, two stretched S-Class Mercedes arrived. They both had darkened windows and the four Arabs emerged. All wore Western suits and moved quickly to their table in the restaurant. Amelia was outside of the dining room in the bar during this process and across from a noisy party of sportsmen who seemed to be celebrating a recent rugby victory. 
She guessed they were military based upon their height, haircuts and ways of addressing one another. Donovan had watched all of this. He too, sitting in the bar in a good control position to see what was happening. He could see the Russians. He could also see the Saudis, but more importantly, he was looking for Fredrickson or anyone else carrying out observation. This was made simpler because around half the people in the bar and the restaurant were supplied by him. There was additionally a table of six banking types in mild celebration, presumably of a big city deal. They may have been acting, but their language and interaction seemed realistic enough to be genuine. There were a few couples who looked as if they were genuine, but then again, so did the couple of his own, own units. A group of five Japanese in the bar waiting for a taxi seemed unlikely, and a large mixed family group who had come in from the street for a drink also did not seem very plausible. He was interested to see their reaction to the bar bill for their drinks in a few minutes. This left four individuals seated alone as his main marks. One was clearly waiting for a girlfriend or partner, one reading a book, and the other two were looking around. Donovan had spotted Amelia in particular because of her attractiveness and an attentiveness to the goings-on in the rooms. She had also taken what Donovan regarded as a control position in the room. She could see everything, yet could easily blend into the surroundings. To Donovan, she was the prime. He noticed that the person was also making several phone calls. Donovan was now hyper-alert. In addition to the calls, he could see Amelia approached by one of the hotel staff. Donovan could see that there was an arrival of luggage at the front door. The person he was watching was giving instructions to the doorman about the luggage. Donovan had stood and could make out that the instructions were to leave the luggage in the hotel entrance. The intimate size of the hotel meant that the lobby faced across towards the bar and the restaurant areas. Donovan saw the woman making another call. He noticed one of the Saudi phones ringing and the Saudi take the call. Something was in play. Then Donovan saw Amelia putting down money and starting to walk out of the restaurant. One of the Russians had looked over and appeared to recognise her. There was a shout. Amelia continued to walk as the second Russian also stood and then pulled a pistol from a holster under his jacket. Both he and the other Russian were taking aim on the person leaving the hotel. As she left, she looked long and hard at the luggage. Two shots rang out, and then almost instantly another four. The Russians had missed. Amelia was now both on the ground courtesy of the Metropolitan Police. Several people in the restaurant screamed, and a couple ducked low to the floor. Donovan looked at the luggage. He'd seen that look from the woman. He was convinced the luggage was involved in this. He ran towards it as the general commotion broke out behind him. The Russians were reeling from firstly their own group firing on someone and then their security being breached. The Saudis took a different view. They did not break cover. Their two security men pushed them into a corner of the room and then edged them along the wall to a side door marked fire exit. Donovan was running towards the cases, hoping that no one would fire upon him. The Russians seemed to have been neutralised. The Arabs in the room were trying to leave. Everyone else was part of the operation. If the cases were a bomb, he'd limited time to get them outside. He had luck. They were stacked in true concierge fashion on a wheeled trolley. He ran at the cart and pushed the whole thing along the floor towards the door of the hotel. To his surprise, the footman at the door opened it as he approached. Years of training. The trolley continued on the walkway to the street and then out of control across into the road, where it toppled to a crashing halt as two taxis braked heavily to avoid it. Donovan waved to everyone to clear the area. Bomb, he shouted. Inside the restaurant, there was still chaos. The remaining Russians were attempting to make their way forcefully, but without firepower, to the front door of the hotel. 
but they found themselves faced with significant declared firepower from other guests in the restaurant. The Saudis had done better. Their exit through the fire door had been successful and their cars were on hand to pick them up. Unfortunately, they had not expected a battery of armed police officers to be waiting at the top of the street they were trying to leave. Amelia had done the best. Her departure was some 20 seconds ahead of the main alert. The initial gunshots and deployment of armed forces inside had taken a few seconds to create the external reaction. As she left the hotel, two people had been stepping into a taxi. She had joined them, demonstrating the power of showing the tourists her rather expensive pistol. The taxi had pulled away and then she had abandoned it about 300 yards along the road by the end of the road leading to the car park. She was outside the cordon that was rapidly tightening around the hotel. Her priority was the car, then the explosion. It took her another minute to get to the car to the exit from the car park. Then she turned right and then left as she moved rapidly away from the area. She reached in her pocket, picked her phone, selected the speed dial and pressed. Two seconds later she heard the explosion. She was already three quarters of a mile away. Back at the hotel there was complete chaos. Donovan had used his radio to issue commands. Bob alert, bomb alert. If you are inside the hotel, stay there. If you are in the street, get away from the hotel entrance. Stop the traffic for 100 metres on either side of the hotel right now. Do not approach the cases and trolley in the street. It's a bomb. Another 45 seconds. The inside of the hotel was controlled. The Russians surrendered. The Saudis were outside protesting innocence. The police had stopped the traffic. The area was cleared. There was a sudden noise of glass, then a loud bang, then a pressure wave and heat. The bomb had detonated. Outside, it had done damage to the street and windows. Inside, it would have demolished the entire building and maybe the block. The street was fairly wide where the explosion had taken place. There was a small crater and blast damage, but altogether less damage and disruption than anyone might have expected. The blast could travel upwards without meeting resistance, so a lot of its deadly force had been expended in creating a blast against nothing. Everyone around the area looked at one another. They knew this had been a close shave. One of the Saudi security people immediately said, we should leave the area, this could be one of several. He had good terrorism training, but Donovan was sure that that was all there was. Whoever had just escaped had planted this as one chance. Two Russians had recognised him, but were both dead now. It was not Fredrickson who looked like a professional freelancer, a woman. She would be hard to trace if she was outside of the hastily assembled cordon. Indeed, Amelia Brophy, now Miss Jennings, was already approaching the coned road repairs leading to the M1 to head north to Manchester. Under the chair nearest to where the bomb had initially been sighted was a passport and a wallet, with Brophy's documentation inside. If all had gone to plan, she would have been considered among the casualties. Now she was just disappeared. As the two Russians, who had previously tried to kill her, were also dead, she had officially ceased to exist. Donovan surveyed the scene. Two unoccupied burning cars, a crater the size of a small roadworks, but not very deep. A collection of dazed soldiers, security men and police. More mess than he had hoped, but a lot less than they could have been. On balance, he would get promoted. Endings or beginnings. The events unfolding in Kensington were blissfully unknown to Fredrickson and Dylan, or to Jake and his companions. In parallel, Fredrickson's second meeting with Dylan was taking place, again at the Commonwealth Club. Fredrickson knew that Dylan had cashed the first set of treasury bills. The contract had been returned, the company processes were being established, and Dylan was receiving the other $3.5 million starter fund. 
Dylan was confused when Fredrickson mentioned that the treasury bill had already been cashed. He knew he still had the notes and the codes ready once what he believed was a discounted time period was finished. Fredrickson moved the conversation along. Here is the next $3.5 million, and these are already deposited in an account for you. We can resolve what has happened to the previous payment, but frankly, this will all seem insignificant in a few weeks when the main processes are up and running. Dylan smiled wryly. He thought he might have been double-crossed on the recent transaction, but either way, he was probably safely in pocket. If the unexpected serious crime unit visitors had been genuine, then he would pocket the down payment, and maybe even the second part. If his visitors from serious crime had been fraudulent, there was no way he would mention this to Fredrickson, because it would expose his complicity in the attempt to trap Fredrickson. Indeed, if they'd been lying to him, then the original scheme with Fredrickson was still on, and he stood to make a lot of money from the new arrangement. And, with the goods and services being virtual, the emphasis on providing the connections to anything illegal was still going to be a tough call. Dylan considered the margin on the transactions was as high as it ever could be, less Fredrickson's cut, of course, which in any case was taken off the top of the deals as they flowed. Fredrickson also reminded Dylan this would be good business as long as Dylan did not get careless in the way that Collins had. If he did, then retribution would be swift. Dylan expected to be contacted again by Jake, and at that time would be required to hand over the rest of the evidence, so that Jake's organisation could speedily take down Fredrickson's organisation. Back at the travel lodge near to Heathrow, Jake, Bixie and Claire sat together, sipping complimentary instant coffee from two cups and a tumbler. They all knew that the story to Dylan was made up, but the Dylan almost wanted to accept it. Jake, Bixie and Claire had swiftly taken $1.5 million from Dylan, but at this point Dylan did not know this for sure. That was the attraction of bearer bonds and treasury bills. They were like high-value banknotes and untraceable after the transaction. For Jake, Biggs and Claire, they now had a rather large seed fund of money. If they never met Dylan again, there would be almost no way that Dylan could track them down. Dylan had no real background about Jake, other than the fake story that Jake had given during the meeting. The travel lodge was a suitably anonymous location, and here they were summarising what had transpired in the last few hours. They had located Dylan, persuaded him to give the deposit money from, from Fredrickson. They persuaded Dylan that Jake was from a special government department and that Dylan was already under surveillance. If they melted away from Dylan, they would not be traced, and they didn't think Fredrickson had a lead to them either. They knew that Manners was mainly interested in tracing Darren Collins' information, and this was part of another plan. They were still completely unaware of the existence of Amelia Brophy. Their actions had inadvertently kept them away from the police. Their delays at the start of the week, when they had gone back to Biggs's, and the revelation from Jake that there were some extra aspects to all of this had meant that they'd never got as far as the police. What about the way Lucian was killed? The robbery at Biggs's and the big scene at Jake's started Claire. We can't assume that the people chasing Jake have finished it, she continued. I will need to go to the police, said Jake. They are bound to want to question me about Lucian. I'll need to play very dumb. No one will believe how much has happened to us in the last couple of days. In any case, I can just say I've been working on a story f from on the road. We also need to think about the other people that have links with us now. Some of them may be a little upset. Yeah, we're probably clear of Dylan and Fredrickson, but the original killer is still around, and we don't even know who he's working for, added Bigsy as he paced the small room in the travel lodge. He was looking anxious and started fiddling with the TV remote. There was a loud bang. Bigsy, called Claire, turn it down. Bigsy had switched the TV on, 
and it was on a very loud volume setting. He fiddled the controls. Oops, sorry. He started noticing the programme. It was a news report from Kensington. It was describing the events of the afternoon. This is Sebastian Walker from outside of the Baglionia Hotel in Kensington, London. Today we have seen dramatic events unfold as police surrounded a suspected terrorist cell and then in a lightning shootout, two of the suspects, both armed with rapid repeater pistols, shot on police and other innocent bystanders in the middle of the hotel lobby. There was a cut to video footage of the hotel and some of the signs of devastation. There were the all too familiar signs of police blue and white tape in most of the camera shots. The report continued. In addition to shots fired inside the hotel lobby, there was an attempt to detonate a bomb. An unidentified onlooker pushed the bomb contained in two suitcases to the outside of the hotel. It blew up in the street, apparently detonated by remote control from a mobile phone. Fortunately, there was no injury but a huge crater and many broken windows. There was a cup to a chief inspector. We had received information about a meeting of certain individuals connected with international crimes. The hotel had been chosen, and we had already created a cordon around the location. We were not expecting anything as dramatic as the events which unfolded, but we did have a full terrorist and armed response unit on hand in case things escalated. Our expectation was of a simple meeting between interested parties. In the event, it seems that one group may have set a trap for another group, both of whom we have reason to believe may be involved in some form of gangland warfare. So were both groups apprehended? asked the TV reporter. We were able to take a group of predominantly Russian-speaking individuals for questioning following the incident, replied the chief inspector. He knew what was coming. So the other suspected group, asked the reporter. We don't think there was another group present, said the chief inspector. It looks as if the sources were wrong or that the other group were tipped off. The chief inspector knew that the original reason his team were at the hotel was linked to the Arabs from Saudi Arabia. As they had left the hotel by a side entrance into a waiting car, they had presented diplomatic passports and documentation which allowed them to be whisked out of the area even before the bomb had exploded. Their car had been heading out of Kensington in the same direction as Amelia's, even before she had managed to collect hers from the nearby car park. The Saudis had headed directly back to Heathrow. Their priority was to be out of the United Kingdom well before the main debate started in the UK media. And because they had not directly reacted to the situation, there was no proven linkage of them with anyone else in Baglioni's. The reporter finished the interview and the TV cut back to studio. Another TV presenter started a discussion about whether Kensington was becoming the Wild West of London. Then they cut to a panel debate about what needed to be done with police powers and security to prevent things of this type from occurring in the capital city. Wow, uttered Jake. This has got to be linked with what we have been involved with. It looks like a Russian group, presumably Russian mafia, were involved with a meeting probably about the creation of the new routes. And then someone has tried to blow them up. This is all completely out of hand. They flicked around the limited channels on the Travel Lodge TV. There was a Sky News channel also describing the events. They had found a couple of eyewitnesses in the street. They gave a completely different account from the police. They described mostly the same information, but also how they'd seen someone running from the hotel before a police officer ran outside with the bags on a trolley. They'd also seen some Arabs leaving a side exit from the hotel and getting directly into a large black car and then heading away through a police roadblock. So, Russians, Arabs, a bomb and shooting, declared Jake. This has to be linked to the blue flame and the triangle of money laundering. It looks as if someone was setting a trap. You know what this means, said Claire. The stakes have moved past any of us. They wanted Jake when they thought he had information from the Darren Collins interview. 
The fact is, the game has moved past that now. Whoever is involved in these acts is beyond the likes of Jake and his sound recording. We know it's not Banners. He has had at least two opportunities to get Jake. There has to be someone else or another group, and they're moving up the food chain. As long as they're not tied to the money we have recently borrowed, then I think Jake will be all right now. Jake didn't look so convinced, and neither did Big Z. Why would they stop chasing Jake? My thoughts, said Claire. Firstly, they tried to kill Jake to get to the recording information. They may have needed to kill Jake to get past him to the information, but in the end they could walk right into his house and simply steal everything. When they didn't get everything from Jake's, they located Biggs's and stole the backup disc from there. So they had the data they needed. Second reason, continued Claire, as a warning. Jake could have been working for someone, and that would be a reason to kill him. The Kensington incident we've just seen is a much stronger warning than trying to bump off dear Jake. If you think about it, Jake didn't know much either, other than the code numbers from Darren Collins, and they had a finite lifespan with any value. Thirdly, I suppose Jake could have seen the Arabs, and he would recognise Manners. So Manners could have killed him, but he didn't. It was the data, not Jake, that Manners wanted. Claire stopped. They all looked at one another. So, in risk-to-reward terms, said Jake, at the moment we have £1.5 million, and the people who gave it to us don't know who we are. The others nodded. We think that someone has been after me, but I'm no longer of interest because the offence have moved on. They nodded again. And if we take this to the police, we will need to tell them everything, including about the money. They nodded again. You know, said Jake, at the moment, I honestly think we're ahead. We have some unique combined talents, and maybe worked out our way through this with some luck, but could almost certainly learn a lot about running private investigations. We also have a good starter fund, nodded Big C. If the money is right, I think we have some unique skills and experience to offer, continued Big C. One for all? All for one, added Claire. The triangle was formed. Thank you.